times are in thy hand, and that the government is upon thy shoulders. Teach us, therefore, our Father, to look unto thee for all our todays and our tomorrows, and not under the hands of men. Make us ever strong in faith, unto the end that we may faithfully serve thee, and in all things magnify thy holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is Psalm 14, and our subject is the Third Council of Constantinople, Constantinople 3, versus the abolition of God. Psalm 14, and our subject, Constantinople 3, versus the abolition of God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable work. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside, they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. He has shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation, oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of his desire, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. morning as I was driving along the freeway and listening to the Council of Churches program, I was somewhat startled to read about a special service being conducted somewhere in the county, and the sermon topic of this special service was the problem of a topless church. Now, I was fully aware that the church today is by and large headless. It does not have Jesus Christ any longer as its head. But I didn't realize that its nakedness was going down that far. The church today is headless because it is a part and parcel by and large of the death of God movement. The Death of God movement extends far beyond the formal frontiers of what is called the Death of God philosophy. Wherever you have modernism, wherever you have existentialism, neo-orthodoxy, the social gospel, you have implicitly the Death of God movement. Man has taken the place of God. The Death of God movement is not new. It is an ancient movement. We can find it, for example, in a very major form 
throughout the medieval period, the abbot Joachim of Flora was the major figure in the medieval death of God movement. He declared that there were three ages to history, the first age, the age of the Father, or Old Testament religion, the second age, the age of the Son, or New Testament religion, the third he called the age of the Holy Spirit, the age when all men realized that they were gods and took over the government of the universe. This movement was exceedingly powerful and one of the most dominant of intellectual movements for centuries. Before that, you had, of course, in the early church, Gnosticism, Arianism, Monophysitism, and other related movements. But behind all of these, you have man's original sin. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Every man his own God. Abolish the sovereignty of God. Abolish God from your intellectual horizon and universe and declare yourself to be your own God. And this is the basic movement which undergirds all of these. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The Sixth Council, which was the third council at Constantinople, is the last of the ecumenical councils which is recognized by both the Eastern Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and Protestantism. It is thus the only, uh, the last of the councils which is binding in all three areas to any degree. It was called in 680 and 681, and its problem again was the same recurring humanistic heresy. Now, many scholars, as they deal with these councils, particularly the Third Council of Constantinople, insist that the theological issue was so refined and so involved that with most people it was not a question of heresy, it was simply ignorance they didn't understand. And they continue, this was the basic problem in much of the controversy over all the councils and the creeds. An Orthodox Christian cannot accept this perspective. Man's problem is not lack of knowledge or ignorance, it is sin. It is a willful disobedience of God and a neglect and a denial of his word, not a problem of information. Man sinned willfully against God and sought to be God, to make himself the ultimate source of truth and law, to make himself the basic force of the universe and the basic point and frame of reference. Man in his sin and his rebellion against God will only 
tolerate if he allows any God, a democratic God. And so when he approaches God, he says in effect, we will permit you, God, to have a place in our universe if you will be a good boy and take your place among the rest of us and you'll have just another vote in the great democracy of the universe. In one sophisticated form of this, as it approaches the doctrine of election, we find such people, humanists, basically saying that where our election is concerned, God casts one vote and the devil casts another vote, but man casts the deciding vote. In other words, man is sovereign, man is ultimate, man's word is basic in the determination of things. The Third Council of Constantinople met to deal with monopolism. Monopolism, M-O-N-O, T-H-E-L. I-S-M M-O-N-O-T-H-E-L-I-S-M Monopolism means basically one will. Now Chalcedon had closed the door to the doctrine of one nature for Jesus Christ. Chalcedon had made it emphatic that the orthodox doctrine is that there are in Jesus Christ two natures, that he was very God of very God and very man of very man. That these two natures were brought together in union without a change of nature and without confusion. Now Chalcedon, of course, declared war by that decision on all pagan and Greek thinking. The thinking of all non-Christians is that there is one basic reality, one being, and that this being is continuous, that there may be differences on this being, but they are differences of degree, that at the top you can have whatever you want to call God. Step by step as you come down, you have thinner being, but as people work their ways up the degrees of this ladder of being, they become more and more divine, more and more God. In this matter of the steps on the scale of being, you find, of course, in the Tower of Babel, set forth in its method of construction, you have it in Freemasonry, the degrees by which you ascend upward and become a God. You have it in the medieval concept of the scale of being and the ladder by which man worked his way up so that he became divine by degrees, either by merit, by speculation, or by mysticism. All such views are paganism. Because the biblical perspective, instead of saying there is one common being which is only slightly divine here and totally divine up at the top, 
Instead of one common being, you have the uncreated absolute being of God. And then the created being of man and of all creatures of the entire universe. And that these two can never be merged or confused. That when these two were brought together by the miracle of the incarnation, it was a unique event. And even in that unique event, there was no confusion and no change of nature. In Jesus Christ, his deity remained God. His humanity remained man. But the effort of all these heresies was to try to merge the two natures and to say that man was simply a god in process of evolution. He had certain aspects of his nature to eliminate, and when he eliminated them, he would become more and more fully god as he ascended degree by degree to the higher point. Now, monopolism, because it could not formally deny the doctrine of the two natures without incurring charges of heresy, said, oh, of course, we accept Calvinism and its doctrine of two natures. But we say, after the two natures came together, there was only one will, so that by passing on from the argument about nature to the argument about will, they said that here at this point man and God became totally one and humanity merged into deity at this point. So that Jesus Christ were, as it were, a point in man's development. And as man became a Christian, he entered by baptism into this world where he became divine and then step by step ascended in this scale of being because now he participated in the divinity of Christ. Man, therefore, and humanity as a whole was divine. Significantly, as with other forms of this pagan and Hellenic heresy, it came from the state. In fact, monopolism was propounded and first propagated by an emperor, Heraclius. And when you think it over, it's obvious why this is a convenient doctrine for the state. And why statist education will always destroy the biblical faith. After all, what does express the highest point of power in the universe as far as the eye can see? The state, of course. And who is the head of the state? The emperor. So if you see divinity as one with the universe, then you are going to find the highest point of divinity in the state and in the head of the state. So the state becomes God and the emperor becomes the incarnation of that imminent deity in the universe. This the emperors, of course, believed. 
this they propagate. And today we have in the same form this desire to remove the word of God from the people, to educate the children of the state into the faith of the state, into the divinity of the state, so that they might bow down and worship the state. The emperor forced this doctrine on the church. And he found immediately the patriarch of Constantinople agreeable to it. He was a political appointee. Pope Honorius of Rome also accepted the doctrine. And so for a time, the doctrine was in power throughout the church. However, Maximus, known to history as Saint Maximus, a Greek abbot, fought it because he stood in terms of the biblical, the orthodox faith. Saint Maximus went to Rome when Martin I became Pope, and he was able to convert Martin to his son. Together they made a stand for the Orthodox faith. Martin was immediately arrested in trial. And when in the course of the trial the imperial prosecutors began to cross-examine him, Pope Martin attempted to turn the discussion to the theological issues involved. And he was told, don't mix in here anything about the faith. You are on trial for high treason. We too are Christians and Orthodox. And Martin replied, would to God you were. But even on this point I shall testify against you on the day of that dreadful judgment. Then is now, of course, the strategy of the anti-Christian movement becomes apparent. They would not admit they were attacking the biblical faith. Instead, they were trying Pope Martin on high treason. And how is it today that everyone who is thrown out or persecuted in virtually every church in the United States is persecuted on grounds of the faith? Not at all for violating church order or church discipline, for being rebellious against the bishop, or if his case is serious enough, there are innuendos spread abroad about his moral character. This is the strategy. No discussion on the issue. For St. Maximus, who had been the fountainhead of the opposition, and even worse, faith, faith was reserved. He was tried and badgered extensively to make him break down and renounce the faith. He was beaten and tortured, and when Maximus refused, his right hand was cut off so that he could not write for the faith and his tongue cut out so that he could not speak for the faith. This, together with the beatings, 
led to his death soon after the trial. They were out, you see, to abolish God. Now God can be declared abolished from all considerations by three methods. And all three have been tried in history. The first method is by the outright denial of God. It can be said that God does not exist, that the concept is unnecessary. This outright atheism is not too common. It is too open, obvious, and honest. And very few men will take it. The number of professing atheists are very few in the United States. There are actually fewer professing atheists now than there were 40 years ago. The reason, of course, is that while there are more atheists, most of them are in the church and in the pulpit. They do not profess it, obviously. The second form of the denial of God is Instead of denying God, to deny man and to abolish God thereby. The classic example of this, of course, is Charles Darwin. Darwin expressed his hatred of God by destroying the idea of God as, uh, in man. Man is the image and the creature of God. Man as a revelation of God and the universe as a revelation of God. For him, it was the product of chance. When in 1881, a person in England who knew Darwin wrote to him a letter in which he pointed out how all creation testified to God and everything gave evidence not of chance and of evolution but of the most intricate design. And to purposive creation. Darwin admitted in his reply that the argument were thoroughly convinced him, in fact, for him, conclusive. But he continued, and I quote, You have expressed my inward conviction, though far more vividly and clearly than I could have done, that the universe is not the result of chance. But then with me the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals are of any value at all or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Notice the strategy. Darwin did not deny the doctrine of evolution 
because man's mind was totally untrustworthy. But when he was faced with an argument concerning the reality of creation and the sovereignty of God, though he admitted that his inward conviction was that this argument was sound, yet he denied the reality and the conviction of the argument by saying, oh, but my mind is the product of evolution and it's no different from the mind of a monkey. Then how can any conclusion of my mind be valid when my mind concludes there must be a God and creationism must be true. Darwin, you see, denied God by denying man. The third method used to deny God and to abolish him from philosophical consideration is by means of an affirmation of God which leaves God as a mere adjunct of man or as a captive of man. He is then simply man's tool and servant and the power and the glory are transferred to man. Now the monopolites took this third course. They abolished God in effect in their thinking by an affirmation which introduced humanity into the Godhead and made man one with God so that in the name of Christianity, humanity and atheism were affirmed. This was the monopolite strategy. Deny Christianity in the name of Christianity. And it is still the strategy. At the council, Pope Agatho's letter stated the case against monopolism. He affirmed the Chalcedonian faith that the two natures are separate. Man cannot become divine. So to affirm the divinity or potential divinity of man is humanism. But the biblical faith is man is a creature and God is uncreated being, the sovereign creator. The council in its anathemas against monopolism declared that it did two things. First, it exalted into the divine essence that which is created. And second, it brought down the glory of the divine nature to the place suited to the creature. In other words, it exactly reversed the place of God and man. It made man the creator and God the creature. Thus, when it talked about Jesus Christ and his incarnation, monopolism was guilty of pretense and of hypocrisy. In place of Christ, it substituted a divine universe, and man made God. It abolished God in the name of God. The council stopped monopolizing. But today, the same death of God movement is with us. 
and it is in power in virtually all of Christendom. Yesterday I heard a priest declare that man became divine by baptism. This is simply nothing but the old heresy now proclaimed as the faith. On all sides you see humanism has thrown in the church. However, the destiny of heresy has always been decay and death. It is the fool that says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt as the psalmist declares. They are altogether filthy. And God who is the God of all creation will in due time destroy them. Thus, though we be but few in the face of the enemy, we have this assurance. If God be for us, who can be against us? Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou art God the creator of heaven and earth. If God be for us, who can be against us? Let us pray. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou art God, the creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible and that in the space of six days. We thank thee that thou art he who of old didst humble Pharaoh and destroy the might of Egypt, didst part the Red Sea asunder and deliver thy saints. And thy power, O Lord, is unchanged still. We thank thee that thou art the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who didst raise the dead, heal the sick, save the sinners, and destroyed the power of sin and death in his atoning death and resurrection. And we praise thee, O God, that thy power is unchanged still. Make us bold, therefore, our Father, in thine unchanging power, and confident as we face our todays and our tomorrows, knowing that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Our Lord, how great thou art. We praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. He was in exile and for some time, and I believe died in exile, finally. Yes. Yes. The East 
Roman Empire, the imperial government, before a special court appointed by the judge, uh, by the emperor. Yes. Mr. Rush, uh, Heidi Newman last week told me that after a recent speech of hers, the uh, clergy was sent in honor, and uh, the Episcopalian minister asked him to support it. And um, he was pointing out why the state had to wrestle with the welfare and all explain it might not be, or the poverty might not, might not be proper in all respects. At least they were doing their Christian chores. Uh, uh, so she was talking about responsibility. So after all, I cannot respect your position because responsibly, how do you stand for the Jesus Christ complaint? And he was saying, well, that is precisely your problem. That, uh, that here, I have my clock to take care of and do my ministry. And that is strictly political. It has nothing to do with the rest of the church. And he was pointing out that that was her negative approach to the poverty problem the same way that she looked at him with respect to the being part of the So he said, let's see if we could put you on a positive basis. Now you get down on your knees and pray for Eugene Carson Blake. He said, I don't agree with him either. The Presbyterian minister and made her get down and pray. And afterwards he said, did you pray for him? And she could have tears in her eyes. No, he said, I pray that God would stop him. And uh, she said, well, how, how would you analyze that? And I really couldn't answer it too well. Yes, well, the Scripture tells us that we are not to receive anyone who brings not the true doctrine, neither to receive him into our house nor to bid him Godspeed. And we are also told that for such a one we are not even to pray. So that this business of seeing prayer as the answer for everything is pure humanism. We are not commanded at all times to pray for all people without any restriction. This is to make a mockery of prayer. And in one instant in the Old Testament when Moses came before the Lord God told him to go back and speak to the people in other words it was not a time for prayer he knew what he was supposed to do the people were in sin at what point was there in praying to God when he had a responsibility to rebuke the people now if we are going to take the way out of prayer when we know what's wrong with the church we have a business first to make a stand against what's going on and then to walk out how is God going to listen to a prayer when we are not doing that which we can do in other words when we come to God in prayer we cannot ask him to take away a problem that we are doing nothing about this is not godly prayer. So this minister was obviously evading the issue of his own responsibility. He was guilty first of receiving men in his own church who taught the wrong doctrine. And John in his 
second epistle makes it clear that he was not to receive any such or to have fellowship with them. But he was fellowshipping with them, living with them in peace. Thus, he had no right to talk. Second, he himself was guilty of everything these men were doing because if we make no protest, we are guilty of condemnation. This, of course, it, we are an accessory to the fact to use modern legal terminology. And the Old Testament makes it clear that this is a sin. We are a participant to a crime if we are silent in the face of it. And this man was a participant to a crime against God by his silence. He has done nothing in the church to change the situation. So he had no right to talk and she had every right to call him a hypocrite. Yes. In line with that then, uh, if they come back and say, well, what about the scripture? What, you know, what about what I know you to this then, this is what, you know, Christian and say those who agree with Yes. And they come back with that, then, what is your answer? Yes. Those who are our enemies, this is a different thing. This is personal, but the enemies of God are on a different basis. Do I not hate them that hate thee? Thee. Yes. Because we cannot make our personal frictions and enmities a matter of uh, great moment in the universe. Now, we often have fallings out with people who are fellow Christians and it's our personalities, our frailties and we don't get along. In such cases, we are governed by the law of God which tells us to love our enemies even though they use us despitefully. But, where it's the enemy of God, it's a different relationship. They are not our enemies, they are God's enemies. And if we go to and give aid and comfort to God's enemies, we are one with them. It's a case of treason. If you give, that's the definition of treason, aid and comfort to the enemy. Yes? You know, Yes, that's true. <laughs> Stay away from any such. That's the best answer. Yes. Um, I read this week that, um, uh, um, sorry, I can't remember what it was, uh, but the statement was made that um, uh, Christ didn't know his son, uh, his sonship to God, and therefore that was why he had to go off and pray, as he did uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he didn't know what his destiny was, mm -hmm. but. Uh, that's right. He knew as a child what his destiny was and said, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Uh, that was simply the theory of kenosis that you ran into, that supposedly Christ was emptied of all his divinity and knowledge and so on. And when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, the 
point of his prayer was not that the cross be taken from him because everything he had said to that point indicated this was to be his victory, his moment of triumph. But if you read over the incidents there very carefully, you find, and I think the greatest thing incidentally on the whole of the Passion Week is a three-volume study by Dr. Skilder. K. Skilder, S-C-H-I-L-D-E-R. It's published, I believe, by either Baker or Erdman. But at any rate, you remember he took the three with him and asked them to watch with him this one hour. He knew that he was to be made sin for us and it was the utter loneliness, the desolation that was difficult for him. And in a sense, he was hoping against hope that there might be some understanding among the disciples. Could ye not watch with me this one hour? So that uh, the cup was this cup of total isolation and loneliness. And yet he accepted it. Uh, yes. Yes, this was his destiny. As the sin bearer to be isolated from God and in the process also from man. And this was a cry prophetically uttered by David in Psalm 22, centuries, or was it 21, excuse me, uh, 22, centuries before the event. And the cry was forever nailed to the cross. And man no longer can make the statement that David did. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in Christ, the evidence indicates that we are not only not forsaken, we are redeemed. And all that man does now is in the face of this, to forsake God himself. A couple of little items I'd like to call to your attention. One is an interesting item from an indictment in Washington, D.C. in 1859 in a murder case. It was the infamous General Sickles, who was involved, he was guilty of shooting and killing someone. At any rate, I think the form of the indictment tells us a great deal about the Christian character of the country at that time. I'll read a portion of it. District of Columbia, County of Washington, to wit. The jurors of the United States for the county aforesaid upon their oaths present that Daniel E. Sickles, late of the county of Washington aforesaid, gentlemen, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, on the 27th day of February in the year of our Lord, 1859, with force and arms of the county aforesaid, 
in and upon the body of one Philip Barton P. in the peace of God and of the said United States, then and there being, feloniously and willfully, and of his malicious aforethought, did make an assault. A little different from our legal terminology today, isn't it? This little item, I think, uh, on public schools, a serious social problem, a statement by Ken Hutchison, I think, is interesting. The number one social problem in America today is the crisis in our public schools. More and more parents are turning to church and private schools for their children. Could it be that the public schools have served their purpose and are now on the way out? It certainly looks that way. In Chicago, America's second largest city, 40% of the children are already in private schools and the number is growing. In Washington, D.C., over 90% of the public school students are colored. The white students who live there attend school elsewhere or in private schools. President Johnson's youngest daughter graduated from a private school. Church and private schools are greatly increasing in the New York City area. Senator Robert Kennedy has his children in a private school. So does Mayor John Lindsay. In the South, private schools are opening so fast we cannot keep up with them. For example, the enrollment in 28 private schools in South Carolina has nearly tripled this summer alone. Not only are students leaving the public schools, but teachers are too. New York has the highest pay rate for public school teachers of any city in America. But the dangers there are so great that one-third of the teachers are full-time substitutes. This is so they can quit at a moment's notice if the dangers become too great. Last year, it was reported that serious attacks on teachers in that city averaged one a day. This is from the uh, Bible Presbyterian Church Bulletin of Walker, Iowa, for November 20, 1966. Now, yes. Yes, if they accept federal aid. What happened in England was that the Fabian Socialists at the beginning of the century started parliamentary aid to all the Christian schools. And one of the prominent Fabians on the Fabian board sent in his resignation. And Bernard Shaw wrote to him, he was another uh, board member, and told him, in effect, you're a fool. Don't you realize this is the way to destroy Christianity? to destroy these schools, have them eating out of the trough and they will be so dependent on us that when we lay down a law they will follow because they are afraid to go back and be independent. Yes? Mike, in the last uh, mayoral election in New York, you know, Abraham uh, Beam was, uh, was bragging about being a product of the New York public uh, School system to Buckley answer that which fact is obvious. And, uh, <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you think of Buckley and his Christianity and his position? Buckley is a very talented and able man, and 
There are often good things in his publication, but basically he is not a conservative. He is a conservative liberal. Now, the basic difference between conservatism and liberalism is that the liberal believes in intervention. He believes that the government should intervene to save man from poverty. He should intervene in foreign affairs. He should intervene here, there, and everywhere. Now, when you hold to interventionism, you can be a conservative interventionist or a radical interventionist. The radical interventionist says we should not only intervene but take over. The conservative interventionist says we should intervene only to give a hand. Now, the historic Christian position in America going back to John Cobb, which is from the early 1600s, is anti-interventionist. The state has no right to play the role of a savior and to intervene here, there, and everywhere in the affairs of men or in foreign affairs. It's function is the ministry of justice. Now, we have been interventionist as a country since World War I, as far as foreign affairs are concerned. We intervened in the European War 1917, 1943, and again in, or 1941 in Korea, and now in Vietnam. This is interventionism. We are intervening in every area of private and industrial life. Now, Buckley is a very mild interventionist, but he is an interventionist. He does believe in a certain amount of intervention in foreign affairs. He does believe in a certain amount of intervention domestically, but he's very conservative about it. So that he is very different from historic American conservatives. Yes? There's one thing that uh, I have to know about is um, if the uh, framers of our Constitution have seen the implications of certain things, they might have framed a few of their articles a little differently. But I'm thinking particularly now of the uh, question of whether they shall maintain Which 
goes before uh, and leads us to hear so that we might understand and believe so that prevenient grace moves our hearts to faith and to understanding. Well then would you say that faith and understanding uh, happen simultaneously? I was thinking of uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 man Yes. Well, uh, faith goes before knowledge because it knowledge rests on a presupposition and once the faith appears and behind the faith is the prevenient grace then knowledge opens up in terms of the presuppositions of that faith now the, the Holy Spirit compels one of God's elect to have faith yeah. uh, therefore we don't need to have knowledge previous to the faith we don't have to have knowledge on which our faith is based the Holy Spirit leads us to a realization of our sinful nature and our need of a Savior. Yes. But other than this, we don't need prior knowledge. However, uh, the Holy Spirit can work through knowledge which brings us to that point of faith, you see. It's the prevenient grace that is prior. You have to insist on that. Now, that prevenient grace can use a number of things to precipitate the moment of faith. It can be a bit of knowledge or something else, but it's prevenient. And then the faith opens up and light enlightens all knowledge. But it's the prevenient grace of God that is prior to all else. Yes? Uh, I wonder if you could comment on this proposed amendment of this thing about the Bible in public schools. I mean, you're allowed to because uh, we're no, I am against it. Because first, it does not, it is not specifically Christian. It opens up the way for any kind of religion in the schools, basically. And second, what it will do is to lead people to a complacency about what the reality of our status education is. It will not make the schools Christian. It will give a facade so that the schools can more readily subvert the country. And people will sit back and say, well, why worry about anything? We've got the Bible in schools. I've written a long analysis of the congressional hearings and of the uh, bill, which may be published sometime in the next few months by a particular magazine. I've been paid for it already, so I think they will publish it. Uh, yes.
Well, our time is just about up, and I thought I'd pass on a little item which has no uh, religious significance whatsoever, but some of you will remember uh, the way travel was and cars were before World War I and after World War I also. I was a very small boy then, but I remember some of these things. And this was exactly the kind of thing you did get from uh, car dealers. Just a little poster. Travel hints for motorists. Use chewing gum to mend a leaky gas line. Carry a can of ether for winter starting. Test for an overheated engine. Spit on it. If there is a sizzle, all is well. If steam arises, check your radiator. Strain all gas through a chamois skin to remove water and dirt. If the spark lever slips while you are cranking, tie it in position with a piece of string. A box of oatmeal flakes is handy when the radiator springs a leak. <laughs> Pour flakes into the water. As they swell, they fill the hole. Dried horse manure is also good and, of course, always available. <laughs> to rejuvenate a warm tire, pump in a cup full of chopped up feathers and hot molasses. <laughs> Spin tire to distribute the mixture evenly in steel pores and holes. Watch out, though, there is a blowout. <laughs> a gun is no longer needed when you visit the Western States. <laughs> to clean the celluloid windows near side curtains, remember those? Use vinegar. To keep windshield clean on rainy days, rub sliced onion over it. <laughs> With that, we stand dismissed.